Old-Fashioned Murder and Mayhem, The School Marm Murder, Louise B. Garish, 1924. The 13 students who attended Pershing School in Amherst, Maine, were growing restless. Miss Louise Garish, the pretty 19-year-old teacher, had not yet shown up for class, and the hour was approaching noon. The children, ages 7 to 15, assumed Miss Garish was ill and had neglected to send word to close the school for the day. Rejoicing over receiving an unexpected free day, the class headed to their respective homes, but when parents inquired at the Williams boarding house, they discovered that Louise had not returned home after an errand the previous day. By late afternoon, her bullet-riddled body was discovered lying in a shallow grave in a nearby pasture. Welcome to another episode of Old Fashioned Murder and Mayhem. I am your host, Mindy Hudson, bringing you tales of scandal and true crime with a twist of genealogy. Join me today as we explore the tale of the school marm murder, Louise B. Garish, 1924. Winter Harbor, Maine is in Hancock County, just under the thumb of the state's mitten-shaped boundaries. Known for fishing, the lobster industry is its most lucrative claim to fame. Lifelong resident Woodbury Garish married Ludella May Keller on November 6, 1893. Hard-working and respected pioneers, the Garishes were lobster fishermen and timbermen. Louise Bell, born on March 6, 1905, was the middle child of nine born to Woodbury and Ludella. She was pretty, bright, and well-loved by her community. As a young teen, she taught Sunday school in the Baptist church her family attended. She graduated with honors from Winter Harbor School in 1923. After graduation, she became engaged to her high school sweetheart, Walter Coombs. In the meantime, she secured a teaching post in Amherst at the Pershing School about 42 miles north for the upcoming school year and planned to attend college the following year. Her future looked bright. Louise was attractive, petite, with dark hair and eyes. She wore large round glasses, which was the popular style in the 1920s. Always impeccably dressed, she stood out among the simply styled girls in Amherst. However, her exuberant personality won over any jealousy that might have marred her acceptance into the community. Two of her former Winter Harbor classmates, Frances Smallage and Merle Coombs, joined her in Amherst where they received posts at nearby schools. As was the custom in the days of one-room schoolhouses, the teachers boarded with various local families during their tenure. Louise moved into the home of the George Williams family. As the school year commenced, it was the habit of the young teachers to meet at the local post office general store each morning to walk to their respective schools, then to meet again afterward for their trek home. Miss Garish was a favorite among her pupils. Her charges ranged in age from 6 to 15. To supplement her small teacher's salary, Louise kept small bottles of mail-order perfume in her desk drawer, which she would sell to her students. While living in Amherst, she met Russell Williams, the son of George Williams and first wife Myra Chick. 
Russell was a handsome young man with black hair and smoldering dark eyes. Only slightly older than Louise, he was seen escorting the young woman to and from social events. They kept their relationship discreet, but during the December Christmas break, Louise returned home to Winter Harbor and broke off her engagement to Mr. Coombs. As the school year was drawing to a close, Louise invited Francis and Merle for a sleepover at the Williams Boarding House. The young girls spent the evening as teenagers have for generations, eating, laughing, gossiping, and dancing to the music played on Vic Louise's Victrola. Clad in their nightgowns, the shutters thrown open to let in the cool breeze, the trio danced with abandon. Not one of them was aware that out in the bushes beyond the house, there were three teenage boys, students of one of the unsuspecting teachers, spying on their every move. Walking to school the next day, Louise noticed a note pinned to a tree along the path she traveled. It read, quote, We watched your performance last night in your pajamas. It was kind of you to keep the windows open. What a wild dance. Your dance was perfectly magnificent. We certainly had our eyes on you. It did surprise us to see the quiet village school marm dancing steps that indeed would not look good in church. We will be around next week. End quote. If the note jarred Louise, she never let on. It is probable that she was embarrassed by it. She hid the missive away, perhaps hoping to uncover the identities of the peeping Toms and put a stop to the spying. Little did she know that an innocent act of teenage exuberance would lead to her horrific murder. On Monday, May 19th, Louise arrived at Dunham's General Store where she made a purchase. Upon leaving, she accidentally dropped her purse. Soon after, Mr. Dunham found the small purse and opened it to see if there was any identification inside. He noticed there were a few small bills folded in an unusual way. Before finding evidence, the purse belonged to the local schoolteacher, Louise Garish. He returned it to her the next day, Tuesday. Wednesday, May 21, 1924, began as most any spring morning. The day was cool, with temperatures between the 50s and low 70 degrees. Louise met her friends that morning and walked to their respective schools. At the end of the day, Louise made her way back to the Williams boarding house, where she ate supper. After the meal, she left the house and headed to the Dudham store to mail a letter. She let Mrs. Williams know that she was planning to meet with her friend Frances Smallage before returning home. Mrs. Williams expected Louise to return before dark, as was her habit. Louise never made it to either destination. Among the residents of Amherst was the family of Adelbert MacDonald, a farmer and logger. He was married to the former Hattie Giles, and many of their ten children were among the students who attended Pershing School. Tragedy had cursed the family over the years. In 1915, six-year-old son Victor lost an eye in an accident. The following year, four of the children, Teresa, 13, Roland, 8, Victor, 7, and four-year-old Edna, were gathering mayflowers when they became separated. The oldest daughter and boys made it home, but Edna had wandered off and was lost. A frantic search 
was organized. The child was found days later, face down in a field over four miles from where she disappeared. She had died from starvation and exposure. It wasn't unusual for rural families to face such hardships, but it took a toll on the McDonald's. The eldest son, Roland, was slow-witted, according to those who were familiar with the family. He was always behind in school and had been scolded a time or two by Miss Garish for not completing assignments. At 15, he preferred to take his 12-gauge shotgun and hunt for squirrels and rabbits. He was known to be cruel to animals. Later, Victor related how he had seen his brother cut up live rabbits and set fire to sheep. Roland and Victor MacDonald were with Robert Stevenson, an 18-year-old road worker and author of The Mysterious Letter, when the teachers had their impromptu dance. Something had stirred within the pubescent boy as he watched the girls swaying and giggling with abandon. He and Victor had easy access to the Williams' property as they came daily to do chores there to earn money to aid their family. Nevertheless, despite their lack of resources, the McDonald's were considered a respectable family. By noon, May 22, 1924, the students at Pershing School dispersed when it became clear Miss Garish was not coming. When parents began questioning what had happened to the teacher, who was normally so reliable, they eventually ended up at Mrs. Williams' place. The elder woman was astonished to find her charge had not shown up for school. She had assumed Louise had made the trip to the post office the previous evening, then went on to visit her friend Frances Smallage. When she didn't return home that evening, Mrs. Williams thought the young woman had decided to spend the night at her friend's, not wanting to travel after dark. Upon reaching the house where Frances was staying, they discovered Louise had never shown up for that appointment either. The whole town was sent into panic. Something terrible had happened to Miss Garish. At best, she had become lost. At worst, something sinister had happened. Many of the local citizens aided in the search. Ex-Sheriff Forrest Silsby was working in his blacksmith shop with his son when he was approached to aid in the hunt. He finished the project he had been working on and joined the search. Even many of the older school children, including Roland McDonald, joined the effort. The Silsby's retraced Louise's steps from the boarding house toward town. He noticed a pool of blood in the road and signs of a struggle. Roland called his attention to an area where it appeared something had been dragged into the brush. It didn't take long to follow the trail to a small, shallow area in the pasture where it appeared the dirt had been recently disturbed. Silsby stopped the search and called for Sheriff Ward Westcott to come to the sea. When the sheriff arrived, the grave was uncovered, and those gathered were greeted with the horrific sight of the pretty young schoolteacher, a shotgun blast to her breast, and her head covered with her undershirt as if the perpetrator couldn't bear to look upon the face of his innocent victim. The body was sent to the coroner for autopsy and the quest to understand who could have committed such a heinous act on this young woman. Postmaster Dunham accepted the sad duty of informing Louise's family of the murder. He made the phone call to the Winter Harbor operator because the Garish family did not own a telephone. 
he informed the young operator that he had some disturbing news that needed to be delivered to the Girish family. When the woman said she would be sure to get the message to them, he continued, quote, Well, it's bad news and not a pleasant task. Their girl up here is dead, murdered, end quote. Little did he realize he was speaking to Louise's sister, Beatrice. The funeral for Louise B. Garish was held Sunday, May 25th, in her hometown of Winter Harbor. She was laid in a gray coffin with a spray of beautiful flowers laid at her breast. The little church was overflowing with mourners, which included her family, former schoolmates, and both of her former suitors, Walter Coombs and Russell Williams. She was laid to rest in Greenwood Cemetery. In the meantime, the search for the murderer continued. Detectives E.C. Brown and J.R. Wood of the Wood Detective Agency in Boston took over the investigation. Several theories were tossed about, including the standard assumption that a traveling tramp or jilted lover had killed her, the atrocious finding that she had been violated after her death lent a sickening angle to the case. The person responsible had to be morally reprehensible or mentally deranged. All her known male friends were interviewed and dismissed as suspects given that they all had strong alibis. It appeared most likely the person responsible was a local man because a shotgun and spade had been readily available to them. Even the older students in her class were interviewed, but none seemed capable of such deed. That is, until one boy, who was always hanging around the newspaper reporters and investigators, eager to help and curious about the case, happened to enter Dunham's general store to buy his favorite chocolates and handed the proprietor a strangely folded dollar bill. Mr. Dunham didn't say anything, but when the boy left, he went straight away to the sheriff and told him about the day he had looked in Miss Garish's pocketbook where he had seen that same dollar. Sheriff Westcott wasted no time heading out to the McDonald residence to question Roland McDonald. He and his younger brother Vincent were taken to the sheriff's office for interrogation. When confronted by the folded dollar, Roland insisted that his mother had given him the money. However, when the sheriff remarked that he would question her about it, Roland relented and admitted that he had indeed killed Miss Garish. When asked why he did it, he casually remarked, quote, Why did I kill her? I don't know. I just saw her coming along the road and decided to shoot her. That's all there is to it, end quote. Roland accompanied the authorities to the scene of the crime, where he reenacted the events of the killing and burial. On that fateful Wednesday in May, Roland left school and headed with Victor to the Williams place to do their chores. Afterward, the boys left for home. Before supper, Roland decided to take his 12-gauge and go back to the Williams farm to hunt for squirrels. As fate would have it, he saw Miss Garish leaving the house and walking toward town. He quickly ran ahead and hid behind a post fence as she made her way up the dusty road. An impulse seized him, and he stuck the barrel of the gun between the railing and waited. As the unsuspecting girl reached the place where he was hidden, he fired the gun. 
buckshot struck her through the right breast and tore a hole exiting through her left breast. She fell to the ground before she knew what had happened. Roland ran onto the road exuberantly celebrating that his shot hit its mark. Realizing someone might see them, he dragged her into a clump of bushes nearby where he assaulted the dead body in the most gruesome manner. Afterward, he took her purse, her watch, and two rings. It was supper time, and Roland didn't want to be late for supper. He propped her body against the bushes out of sight and went home to eat. Early the following morning, he returned to the scene to hide the body. He intended to pick her up to carry her, but he was tall and gangly, and the body was heavy, cold, and damp. He dragged her a distance by her feet, but her ghastly expression haunted him. Not too far away, he had seen a road crew working. Deciding to take a quick break, he sneaked over to the work site and stole a shovel. Upon his return, he tore off Miss Garish's undershirt and covered her head with it. At that point, he dug a shallow grave in the pasture. He continued to drag the body to the grave by tugging on the covered head. At that point, Roland agreed to lie in the grave he had made for Louise Garish so that the photographer could snap a picture for the detectives. After completing his Garish mission, Roland joined the other students at school to await the beginning of a new school day. He was the only one who knew that Miss Garish would not be arriving, but he never let on. Roland told the tale in a matter-of-fact tone, without emotion. Both Roland and Victor were held in jail. Roland was charged with murder and Victor was held as a material witness. The strain of the arrest of his sons caused their father, Adelbert, to suffer a nervous breakdown. At first, the newspapers claimed he had gone insane, but later retracted that statement. It was only natural that this quiet, unassuming man would be distraught over the devastation in his family. The details of the murder were so out of the realm of anything even the seasoned detectives could imagine. There had been no reason, no anger, no remorse, and no understanding of the magnitude of what had happened in this boy's mind. This was the only hope of a defense for him, and oh, the psychologist called alienists of the day ate it up. In the early 1920s, there had been an unusual spike in the incidence of violent crimes committed by very young people. The study of mental illness and crime was becoming popular as citizens, law enforcement, and medical professionals sought an explanation for the phenomenon. Between 1923 to 1925, there were more than a dozen serious crimes committed by extremely young perpetrators. In a December 13, 1925 article in the Commercial Appeal, the following introduction was presented, quote, what is the matter with our boys? The question has been asked by every generation concerning the next one, but with another boy murderer added to the list that has appalled the country within the last two years, there is a note of panic in the cry, and our records show justification for it. 
Never before in the history of crime, probably, have so many boys in their teens or barely out of them been behind prison bars as actual murderers. There is something monstrous in the combination of immaturity and the power to kill. Society, for perhaps the first time in the world, is physically afraid of its young and is obliged to protect itself against them. And so we find them in the courts, caught like young animals in the net of the law, where they constitute a problem that harasses judges, tortures the ability of clear thinking. Facing the electric chair or the clanking of prison doors on a life that has hardly begun, they tell their stories with a boyish crudity that seems to contain little appreciation either of their own position or the havoc they have caused. What unnatural thing is it in our civilization that is making children kill? End quote. End of article. Newspaper articles ran stories of the experts of the day who generally used nothing more than photographs of Roland McDonald to make their diagnoses. Everything from the slope of his eyes to the pigeon-toed way he stood was used to quote-unquote prove a predisposition to murder. His clothing was even analyzed to label him a moron. They looked for evidence of mental defects in other family members in an effort to suggest it was inherited and to argue that he was not responsible for the unspeakable acts he had committed because, at age 15, he had the mental capacity of a 10-year-old. A thorough search of the crime scene uncovered the broken, round-framed glasses that had belonged to Louise. Some torn items of clothing, a blood-stained coat belonging to Roland, and bullets that had scattered from the shotgun. At the McDonald residence, the watch, rings, and shovel used to dig the grave were located. While it is likely that the boy did suffer some form of mental illness, it might have been exhibited by his cruelty to animals or his lack of understanding about the consequences of his actions rather than the bumps on his forehead. In any case, it was the only defense the child had, and it was used to no avail. It took the jury less than two hours after adjourning to reach the verdict of guilty. At 15, Roland McDonald was sentenced to a life term in Maine State Prison. He seemed unaffected by the outcome as if he did not grasp that he was the subject of the circus that was going on around him. While Roland was sent to the state penitentiary, Victor was released due to the lack of evidence of his knowledge of the crime. The only thing he contributed to the case was that he revealed where Roland had hidden the watch, which was found in a crevice under his bedroom window. It is unknown whether Victor knew more about the events of May 21st and 22nd than he revealed, but the outcome haunted him. In 1932, he called his employer to ask if there was any work available that day to find there wasn't. He was found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound later that day. It was unclear whether the gun accidentally discharged when he slipped on ice or if the shot had been intentional. Nevertheless, the McDonald family mourned the loss of another child. Russell Williams, the young man who was rumored to be Louise's beau and possibly fiancé at the time of her death, never married. He served in the Army during World War II and passed away in 1969. 
Roland MacDonald applied for a pardon at least three times, but was rejected each time. He is found in the Maine State Prison from 1930 through the 1950 census records for Knox County, Maine. He was released to a nursing home by the time of his death, September 26, 1979, at the age of 70. He is buried in East Cemetery, Scohegan, Maine. Thank you for listening to this month's episode of The School Marm Murder, Louise B. Garish. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share, leave a comment, like, and subscribe. If there is a historic true crime subject that you'd like me to cover, you may write me at Mindy Hudson, M-E-L-I-N-D-A-M-A-L-O-O at gmail.com. For information about sources used, related social media websites, and information about me, please visit the description box. And join me again next month for another episode of Old Fashioned Murder and Mayhem.